Good morning, GP family on campus. Are you glad you're here? Yes. Amen. And those of you who are watching us online, we're glad you're tuning in and a part of what's going on today. You're going to need your Bibles, so I want you to go find them uh, and locate it because we're going to be looking kind of scripture by scripture as we go through this story. Um, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 26 and uh, find your place there. And while you're doing that, we'll get started. I have a little background uh, to tell you that's similar to, to the, the very real story that we're going to examine in Scripture. First of all, deception is Satan's stock and trade. He is the God of this world, and uh, deception he uses every possible way that he can. And this morning I want to talk to you about the reality of that deception from a very clear narrative in Scripture we're going to find in Matthew chapter 26. You're going to want to keep your Bibles open there and, and your, your pen handy. You can take some notes because we'll be looking at mostly chapter 26, but also a little bit in, in chapter 27. The first slide that we have uh, up on uh, the overhead today is this. Satan is a deceiver. He planted a deceiver among the 12 disciples right along with the faithful. This has always been his ploy. In the mid-20th century uh, in America, two young, very gifted evangelists, uh, they came to, on the scene together, and you know one very well. Uh, his name was Billy Graham. Uh, his history is common knowledge, and the other you may not have heard of at all. We'll talk a, a bit about him. His name was Charles Templeton. Along with Billy Graham, Charles Templeton, and one other uh, minister, uh, they founded together what is known today as Youth for Christ to reach uh, young people with the gospel. It was always said that Charles Templeton was the most gifted preacher. He was intelligent. He had this irresistible kind of personality. He was winsome. He was effective. Uh, he was handsome. And in 1946, the National Association of Evangelicals gave an award out, a bizarre kind of an award to Templeton. They called it Best Used by God, as if they would have known the mind of God and who was best used that year. He and Billy Graham began to preach together, and they were often referred to as the Gold Dust Twins. Charles Templeton uh, overshadowed Billy Graham. He was more eloquent, he was more brilliant, and he was a more polished kind of an orator. And the two of them went preaching uh, on a preaching tour through Europe. They, they went to England, they went to Scotland, they went to Ireland, uh, they went to Sweden and other places. They also had weekly television programs that they appeared on uh, that spanned the nation, CBS, NBC, and through the 1950s, they were church planters as well. And Charles Templeton became a pastor he held uh, youth rallies with thousands who would attend. He, was, uh, he went to Princeton Seminary. He preached across the United States to crowds of 20,000 at a time. He preached for an entire week at Yale University. He was uh, at the peak of his ministry in the 1950s when he announced uh, to everyone that he had become an agnostic, which means to say that he didn't know what he believed any longer. He rejected Christ, he rejected the gospel, he rejected scripture, he read, as he says in his biography, Thomas Paine in 10 days. Uh, beyond that, he read Voltaire, Bertrand Russell, uh, Robert Ingersoll, David Hume, and Aldous Huxley, 
and uh, a list of other atheists that he had read after, and he abandoned all Christianity and all biblical truth and became a journalist in Canada. In 1999, he wrote a memoir of his life that he titled, Farewell to God. And in it, uh, he listed the reasons that he was rejecting Christianity and became an atheist. Uh, He left ministry at that point in 1957. He returned to Canada and he stepped into eternal blackness and apostasy, blasphemed Christ for the remaining years of his life, and he died in utter unbelief. One other piece of this story that is kind of interesting was in an interview that he was uh, very defensive about. He was being interviewed by an apologist, Christian apologist, and just asking questions about his early start in Christianity and how he left Christianity. And he was very defensive throughout this, this interview. But at the very end of the interview, and in total shock to the Christian apologist, he paused for a moment and he said, I miss Jesus the most. Are there other preachers like him? Of course. Do they know that, uh, do we know in some way that they are frauds? Not always. But this is how Satan works. Deceivers planted among believers. I want you to look at two preachers that our Lord tells us about in Matthew chapter 26 and 27. The tale of two preachers, the tale of two sorrows. Tell of two men that you know very well. Both had the most unique privilege. Both had the most unique opportunity that has ever been given to any human being. Both were called by Jesus personally. Both answered that call. And both followed Jesus for the duration of his ministry. Both declared repeatedly that their personal devotion to the Lord Jesus, both were personally trained by Jesus for ministry, both were personally taught by Jesus. You could say in contemporary terms that they were a part of Jesus' small group. He taught them by precept, he taught them by proposition, he taught them by example, he taught them by uh, to know God to know the will of God, the word of God, and to live it obediently. Both saw all the miracles that Jesus did. Both saw the comprehensive revelation of the divine nature every day. Both saw his power over demons, his power over disease, his power over death, his power over nature. Both heard him Evaluate every person he ever met perfectly true to that person's heart and condition. Both heard him answer every theological question perfectly, truthfully, clearly, profoundly. Both were daily confronted with the reality of sin and its effects and the need of salvation. Both were taught about eternal heaven. Both were taught about eternal hell. Both received and used the available power of the Lord Jesus to do healings, miracles, and even exercise authority over demons. Both preached Jesus 
as the Messiah and Savior, Son of Man and Son of God. And they shared all of this together. They were exposed to the Lord Jesus Christ in exactly the same way, and there's more. Both were sinners, and they knew it full well. Both experienced overwhelming guilt regarding their sin. Both gave themselves over to Satan to take up his cause against the Son of God. Both betrayed Jesus boldly, emphatically, publicly, and they betrayed him at the end of their years with him, after they had witnessed everything and saw everything and just before he was crucified. Both were devastated by what they had done. One, in spite of the wicked betrayal of his Savior, is considered so honorable a man, so exalted a person that millions of people have borne his name and have been named after him down through the centuries. He is loved and beloved. He is considered noble Peter, rock, stone. The other one is considered so dishonorable, so despicable, and even though his name means praise, no one has his name. None of you would name your child after this person. The name means praise. It's the most hated and reviled name in the world. In fact, it's illegal in some European countries to give your child that name, the name Judas. One who belonged to Christ, one of these who belong to Christ, we will meet because that betrayer of Jesus is in heaven. The other, only those who reject Christ will meet him if there is such a thing as a meeting in hell. One of these preachers ended his life in suicide, hanging himself, eternally banished. The other one ended as a, his life as a saint, crucified upside down and taken into glory. Two men, side by side, 24-7, three years with each other and with Jesus. Ended up separated as far as anyone can be separated. As far as heaven is from hell. Salvation can't be about works because essentially they both did the same thing. Salvation can't be about knowledge because they both had the same information and were taught the same truth by the same Lord. So what is the difference? In your Christian life, you have met both Peter and Judas, sitting side by side in the church. What happens? How is it that one could be led astray and one could come back? Let's take a look and walk through Scripture. If you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 26, I encourage you to look at verse 6, first of all. When Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial, very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head. And as he reclined at the table, but the disciples were indignant. When they saw this, and they said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price in the money given to the poor. In John chapter 12, verse 4, we discover it was actually Judas that started this conversation and that was so infuriated by what was going on. Why was he protesting? 
John tells us that Judas was the one who kept the money bag. Judas had already decided, it appears, to get out. He had already wasted three years of his life, and he wanted to get as much money as he possibly could. He was riding along the coattails of the Messiah, the fame, but he was ready now to exit. And here's really the first revelation that we have of his character. None of the disciples were ever suspicious of Judas. But he reveals himself by being outraged that this was being wasted and that the money could have been put into the treasury, into his bag. <coughs> when, uh, in verse 12 it says, When she poured out the perfume on my body, Jesus speaking, she did it to prepare for my burial. This is another crushing blow for Judas. Judas wants the money. He wants the power. He was riding the coattails of the messianic hope of Jesus to the end. And, and he wanted the significance uh, primarily driven out of avarice and out of greed. And now he hears that Jesus is, is going to die and that Jesus is going to be buried and that all of his hopes that he had built up over these three years of his life of what he would be and his position and, and where he might land and, and what place he might take in this new kind of kingdom that he felt Jesus was going to build were suddenly dashed and crushed. All this talk about death was more than he could stomach. Verse 14 begins by saying one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot. Judas from the town of uh, Kiroth, and uh, the, the only non-Galilean. He says, he went to the chief priest and he said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? Scripture tells us that they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. And from that point forward, he began to look for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. And by the way, Exodus chapter 21, verse 32 says, 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave. Jesus, to be betrayed for the price of a slave. It's a shocking revelation to us, a, a disappointment that, uh, you know, we can understand disappointment if he, if he was disappointed in, in the direction that Jesus was going, the things that Jesus was saying. All of us can understand disappointment, being disappointed in one another, or being disappointed that God had made a decision for us that we didn't necessarily make for our own lives. But it's, it's impossible, or it's difficult at least, for us to get our minds around moving from disappointment to betrayal. It's stunning, shocking. And given what uh, he had, had been through with the Lord over these three years, it's always shocking to us to see the deconversion of, of a minister, a preacher, a teacher, even a fellow saint who for some reason or another has decided to abandon the faith and walk away after many, many years, after being used by God, after there being evidence of them being uh, valuable to the kingdom and, and, and showing forth uh, their skills, their talents, and declaring that Jesus is Lord of their lives, and now to walk away. And it's so shocking to see the one who had such privilege and opportunity to walk with Jesus, to turn his back. The staggering reality is now that someone who's been with Jesus three years can walk away from him for money. But that was Judas. We're now into Passion Week as we walk through this passage of Scripture. And you see in verse 18, our Lord says, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, 
The teacher says, my time is near. I'm uh, to keep the Passover at your house with the disciples. You remember the story, skipping down to verse 21. He said, truly I say to you, as they are gathered together, he says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. It'd be hard to imagine the shock and the horror and the disbelief. And they had no idea who would betray Jesus among them. And they had to be honest about their, their own sinfulness. And so, uh, verse 22, it's, it's kind of a, an honest uh, kind of 12-step meeting going on in here. You're, you're being deeply grieved. It says they each one, in verse 22, began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered as he dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go uh, just as it is written of him. But woe to the man. Woe is a kind of a curse. It means to condemn. Woe to the man to whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. I think it's got to be the most horrible thing that could ever be said about a human being. It would have been better for him if he had never been born. Because once born, he's never going to die. Judas can't hide from Jesus. And his eternity is now set. Down to verse 30. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That evening, the Passover, the betrayer is unmasked. And Jesus took uh, with him Peter, James, and John. You may remember, and they went to go pray, to spend time in Gethsemane. And each time that, that he comes back, he finds those disciples sleeping. Verse 43, he came and found them sleeping. Their eyes were heavy. He left them again, and he went away, and he prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to the disciples, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand that the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't pray with me as I face this. And he said, Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. At this point, Judas goes into action. You see verse 47, skipping down there, it says, While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied with a large uh, crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief of priests, the elders of the people. I'd have you notice in that passage how it says, One of the twelve. It's more shock, uh, more unreal to us as we, we think about how insidious this is, that the enemy had planted a deceiver among the 12 who were closest to Jesus. How he walked with him, talked with him, how he built relationships among the community. How there were those who had come to look to him as an encourager, as a person who was pointing the way as somebody to be 
uh, to emulate, as a life to follow and be modeled after. He was referred to as one of the twelve over and over again so that we could resonate with the shock of what is happening as he turns his back on Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 70, says Jesus, looking at his disciples, said, One of you is a devil. In John chapter 13 and verse 2, it says the devil put into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. In John chapter 13 verse 27, it says Satan entered Judas. Jesus said one of you is an adversary, one of you is an enemy, one of you is the devil. Satan entered into Judas. That was the story of Judas, the devil put into his heart to betray Jesus, gave him the thought, took total control in John chapter 13, verse 7. He entered into Judas. At this point, Satan possessed. Verse 48. Now he was betraying, he who was betraying him gave him a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one sees him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and he kissed him repeatedly. And Jesus said to him, Friend. That's interesting, that word that's used there in the original language for friend is not the typical word used for friend. It is the word here that means more associate. Associate. Do you do what you've come for? And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. Skip down with me to verse 57. Those who seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest. You know the rest of the story, what goes on in the trial. Skip down to verse 65. Finally, the high priest tore his robes and said with regard to Jesus, he is blasphemed. He is blasphemed. Blaspheming by declaring that he is the Son of God was what they were saying. He's blasphemed by saying he is the Son of God. And then it says, what further need have we to, to have witnesses? Behold, you have now heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, he deserves death. And they replied, and then they spat on his face and they beat him with their fist and they slapped him. And they said, prophesy to us, you Christ, you Messiah, who is the one who hit you? The actions of Judas led to all of this. Go with me to chapter uh, 27, verse 1. Now the morning came, all of the chief priests and the elders and the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. I want to point out that verse that you might understand the word all, all the chief priest, all the Sanhedrin, a body of 70, all of the elders of the people, all conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. It was unanimous, a unanimous decision. The tragedy of Judas comes to a crucial moment there in verse 3, and then Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he was condemned, and he felt remorse. 
and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to it, uh, see to that yourself. You gave us what we wanted. You led us to Jesus in the dark. And then it says, He threw the pieces of silver in the temple sanctuary and he departed. Very simple ending. He went away and hanged himself. He went away and he hanged himself. The chief priests took the pieces of silver and they said, not lawful to put into the temple treasury. This is a statement of legalism at its worst. They're about to kill the Son of God, but they're not going to break one of their ridiculous rules. So they said, it's not lawful for us to put it into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. They wouldn't take the money to execute the Messiah, but they would not put into the temple treasury the money that Judas brought back that he received to betray him. It says, then, so they conferred together with the money brought that bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And then uh, that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of uh, the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them to the potter's field as the Lord had directed them. This was actually prophesied by Zechariah in chapter 11. It mentions Jeremiah here because he's always put at the head of, of the um, prophets. He's the lead name. He's the top name. And all others follow him. The horrible tragedy of Judas. The greatest tragedy in human history. Unparalleled opportunity. Judas is the greatest tragedy in human history because of his unparalleled privilege that he had to walk beside Jesus and among the faithful. He is the ultimate and wasted opportunity. He was greedy. He was a materialist. He was a money lover. He was motivated by a desire for riches. He loved himself way too much. He rejected the truth way too easily. He resented Jesus much too strongly. Most powerful demonstration of wasted opportunity ever. That's the story of Judas. But our Lord would have the writers weave into this story, the story of Peter. So let's go back to chapter 26 and verse 20. What's happening with the other of the two disciples, these two preachers? Pick up the story uh, a little while ago when the evening was come. Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples, verse 26. And while they were eating, Jesus took the bread. And after he was blessed, he broke it and he gave it uh, to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And uh, I would just point out this section of the passage. Judas is no longer here. He's been dismissed. He's gone out. Uh, look back at verse 14. So this is just the faithful that are partaking in, in communion together. In verse 30, we see again, <clears throat> after the singing of a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away this night because of me. It was shocking for them to hear those words. 
that each of them was potential Judases. You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. We find hope in verse 32 in what Jesus is telling them. He says, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. You're going to be scattered. You're going to be unfaithful. You're going, to be for, you're going to forsake me. You're going to leave me, but I'm going to gather you back together. And now we meet Peter in verse 33. Peter said to him, and all of us remember these famous words, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all disciples said the same thing too. A shocking prophecy by our Lord. Back in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus said he was going to die, Peter was the one that rose up and said, no, 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 Lord. That's not going to happen. And it was Jesus that spoke to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. Satan had put things in the mind of Judas, and Satan had put things into the mind of Peter. Judas was influenced by Satan. Peter was influenced by Satan. And now let's pick up on the betrayal in verse 69. Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. Now remember, this is the courtyard of the high priest's and uh, where Jesus' trial had taken place and he was accused of being a blasphemer, you too were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. There's a gasp by all of us who read this, because we remember the words of Peter and how he said, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I die with you, I will not deny you. So much for knowing one's own heart. When a little servant girl says, Oh, you were with Jesus the Galilean. He denies it. I don't know what you're talking about. And, he said, and then the scripture tells us that he, he's gone outside the gateway and he, he relocates. I find a better hiding place. But another servant girl finds him and says, uh, it says in the passage, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it. But this time with an oath, I do not know the man. Later, a bystander comes up to Peter and he said, surely you too are one of them. For even the way you talk gives you away. He had that Galilean kind of slang. And then Peter escalates it. First, he said no. Then he said no with an oath. And finally, now he's saying no with a curse and swearing. I do not know the man. And then immediately the rooster crows. The sad account of Peter actually pronounced a death curse on himself if he was lying. That was his oath. If I'm not telling the truth, 
and may I die where I stand. But did Peter kill himself? No. Judas denounced a death curse upon himself, and he carried it out. There's an amazing moment in verse 75. It says, Peter remembered the words which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. doesn't say he went out and hanged himself. It says he went out and wept bitterly. An amazing moment. At that moment, by the way, Luke, in his account of the same scene, says in verse 22 uh, and uh, verse uh, 61, And the Lord turned and he looked at Peter. Chapter 22, verse 61 of Luke. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter in that moment when he had denied Christ. And it says, then he went out and he wept bitterly. The moment of his final betrayal when Judas' eyes met Jesus, Judas boldly kissed him with the hatred of a hypocrite. When Peter was in the midst of a self-curse and he met the eyes of Jesus, he broke into tears, crushing sadness, led Judas to suicide without repentance. Crushing sadness led Peter to restoration with repentance. This is a crucial moment. Both knew that they were betrayers. One kills himself and the other is restored. How did Peter fall so far? Well, he boasted too much. We know he prayed too little because he fell asleep. We know he acted too fast. He grabbed a sword. We know that he followed too far. He was way out in the courtyard. Why was this not the end of Peter like it was the end of Judas? What distinguishes Peter from Judas? What's going on in the story? I give you the simple answer, and it goes like this. Judas hated Jesus because he wanted something Jesus was not going to deliver to him. There are people who hate Jesus because they want something from him that he has no intention of delivering to them. He had false expectations of what Jesus intended to do for him, and when those expectations aren't met, people hate Jesus. False disciples will give people lies about the Jesus, what Jesus intends to do for them, to fulfill the, their, their desires, their drives, their ambitions. And when it turns out that it doesn't happen, those people learn to hate Jesus for it. The difference was that Peter didn't hate Jesus. He loved Jesus. Jesus says to him in John chapter 21 three times, You know the story and remember it well. Verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. You know I love you. Second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know I love you. A third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things, and you know I love you. And the Lord accepted that is true. And he said to him, Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. That is the deep and compelling reality of a true believer preacher, minister, disciple of Jesus Christ. They love Christ. That's what sets people apart. Hypocrites don't love Christ. They love whatever it is they love, their own personal fulfillment. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 14, for the love of Christ controls us. That's what distinguishes a true believer from a false believer. What distinguishes those who are Peter from those who are Judas is a love of Christ. Is it just an emotion? No, listen to the words of the Lord in John chapter 14. That night in the upper room at the Passover, Jesus defined what it was to love him. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Look at verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Again, take a look at verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my words. He says that again and again, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him. And make our abode with him. Verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words. Verse 28. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Which is to say, if you love Christ, you obey his word, and you desire his glory and his honor over yours. Because Peter loved Christ, his betrayal did not send him to hell. Sin and guilt do not produce true repentance. Did you hear what I said? Sin and guilt do not produce true repentance. Sin and guilt, which is a normal human response to sin, we begin to feel guilt, overwhelming guilt, overwhelming sorrow. Judas felt that. Peter felt that. One was led to repentance by what happened, and one was not. The awareness of sin and guilt or, or do not lead us to true repentance. What, what guilt can do is it can produce remorse. It can produce regret. It can produce suicide, which is a, a kind of deadly sadness. But awareness of sin and guilt of sin do not produce true repentance. Judas was sorry. 
but it didn't make him repent. It made him kill himself. Peter was sorry, but even his sorrow did not make him repent. What I'm saying is the ugliness of your sin, the reality of your guilt is not enough to make you repent in a, in a saving fashion. So what does it take? You may regret and have a, a, a tremendous regret for sinful action, the things that you have done, but not repent. What brings about repentance is, it, and we see it in this story, what makes the sinner repent is not seeing his or her sin, but seeing his or her Savior. Judas only saw his sin. Peter saw his Savior. Judas hated Jesus. Peter loved Jesus. Do you see a savior when you look at Jesus or a potential roadblock to your lifelong desires, wishes, and dreams? What do you see when you look into the eyes of Jesus? Asking our worship team to come back. Both had that encounter, Judas, to look into the eyes of Jesus. And he kissed him with a hatred betrayal. Peter, looking back and seeing Jesus looking at him, he saw his Savior. You remember Peter's words earlier when the 70 walked away from Jesus. And Jesus turns to the disciples and he said, will you go away also? And Peter said, Lord, where can we go? For you have the words of life. There is nowhere for us. There's no other place. There's no escape. Two who walked close to Jesus had very different outcomes. And the challenge for us right now, this morning, is to look into the eyes of Jesus and determine whether we see our Savior or we see a roadblock to our own ambitions, desires, dreams. Many with prominent names, have fallen away over the years. It's grieved my heart as a minister and as a pastor to see those who were common saints fall away, to see great giants, spiritual giants that I looked up to, read books after, was encouraged by, find ways to escape and walk away. But I know for a fact that when they looked at Jesus, they didn't see a Savior. What do you see? I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we pray together. Lord, this is our opportunity to make things right. Both those that are listening online, those that are present here today, we invite you to come, to examine our hearts. As David said, to see if there's any wicked way in us, to know our, our heart truly and to reveal it to us that we might not be deceived by the deceiver and that we might not walk as a deceiver among the faithful but that we would be all in for you jesus all in for your glory all in for your name 
all in for you because you are our Savior. There is no place that we can go. There is nowhere for us to hide. There is no refuge. As the prominent preacher said at the end of his life, Templeton said, I miss Jesus. I miss him. The intimacy. Two men who walked on the road to Emmaus said, after Jesus departed, did not our hearts burn within us as he spake with us along the way? There's nothing like the relationship we can have with our great shepherd. Lord, we want that. Not only for ourselves, but for every person on this planet. We don't want any to fall away. We don't want any to be deceived. And so we're inviting you to come, come. Can you take a moment and just surrender your own life and say, Lord, wherever I have been living in deception, I pray you would reveal to me and show me. I have been a betrayer of Christ, but I wanna look at you and see a savior. I wanna look at you and see a savior and not an obstacle or a roadblock that keeps me from my own ambition and desires. I love you, Jesus. I want you as my Lord and Savior, and I invite you to be so in Jesus' name. I believe you died for me, I believe you rose again, and I invite you to be Lord and leader of my life today and all the way forward in Jesus' name.